This is the Doubles Only Tennis Podcast, where you learn the best tips and strategies in the world to help you become a smarter, more effective tennis player. You'll hear interviews with pro tour doubles players and coaches, including easy-to-use lessons to improve your game and win more matches. My name is Will Bocek, founder of the Tennis Tribe, doubles strategy coach, and host of the show. Hey everyone, in this episode you are going to hear my conversation with Jorge Capistani. So Jorge is uh, one of the top tennis coaches in the U.S. Uh, he lives in Michigan and he uh, is a not only a coach, but he's also an author, an entrepreneur. He speaks at conferences uh, all around the world um, and he's actually one of only 10 coaches in the entire world, who is a master professional for the USPTA and the PTR, which are two of the big uh, tennis coaching um, certification uh, organizations. So um, he is one of the top coaches, uh, definitely in the country, if not the world. And this is a really fun conversation where we talk a lot about doubles. Uh, for the most part, in previous episodes, we go through a lot of questions that I have for uh, the guest, but in this case, I emailed Jorge before the show and said, is there anything you want to talk about? And he sent me a list of 20 questions and a specific video that he said are the most important things for uh, club-level doubles players. So we go through a lot of these questions, uh, and a lot of it has to do with doubles chemistry, with knowing your partner, knowing how to work with your partner, uh, and then we do talk a lot about strategy. Um, he probably has the largest library of doubles drills in the world as well. So uh, we talk a little bit about that. Um, and you can check out the 20 questions, check out uh, the drills we talk about, um, all this stuff in the show notes. Go to thetennistribe.com slash podcast, and you can find the episode there. Um but uh, yeah, this is a really fun episode. I think you're going to get a lot out of this. This is probably going to end up being one of the top episodes uh, we've done to date. Um, and this is episode number 30. So uh, without further ado, uh, enjoy this conversation with Jorge Capistani. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. We've got Jorge Capistani on for today. Jorge, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Awesome, and I'm excited to uh, to have this conversation with you. Um, we've we've met briefly in person, uh, but I wouldn't say we know each other particularly well. Uh, I'm very familiar with your work, and um, I was reading through your uh, your bio on your website today, and um, there is there are probably very few tennis coaches that are as accomplished as you, um, being a coach, an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker. Um, and on and on and on. So I wanted to start by asking uh, if you're just like talking to somebody who you just met in an airport or at the grocery store and they say, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I think the first things that come out of my mouth is tennis coach. <clears throat> but okay. here's, here's what really happens. You know, um, my technical job is I'm a manager of a tennis center. Mm -hmm. uh, here on the campus of Hope College in Holland, Michigan. So that's kind of like my day job, if you will. But I'm also consider myself a coach developer because I through my websites, I have two of them. Uh, the coaches one in particular, a lot of coaches call me, a lot of coaches subscribe to that for drills. 
So I spend a lot of my time and I think even the USDA has us labeled as kind of coach developers, coaches who are helping other coaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably the second way I view myself. Um, and then I'm also a PTM director. So professional tennis management, there's only nine programs in the whole country here at Hope College. We have one and I help Adam Ford kind of mentor up and coming young new pros, which is, as you probably know, there's a huge shortage of tennis teaching pros in our country and everybody's kind of freaking out. So the PTM is one option. So I kind of mentor those kids as well. Okay. So it's, it sounds like you're, um, kind of juggling a lot of different, uh, yeah, different positions I, I there. More and more, I think people are recognizing me for my online work because obviously, you know, that's easy to get out in the world. You can make a video and thousands of people see it. Um, sure. You know, otherwise you have to come to Holland, Michigan and see me in person, which isn't likely. So, yeah, I have a lot of the two websites, one for players, one for coaches. I think uh, that's what gets me mostly recognized, I think, in the industry. Mm-hmm. Just have, haven't been around forever and speaking at most of the bigger tennis conferences, you know, I have a lot of tennis friends, put it that way. Okay. Got it. So, so what does a typical day or typical week look like for you now? Are you spending most of the time in the office or on the court or? Yeah, it's, mo- it's mostly in the office now. I don't teach very much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm managing, um, we have a big tennis center here at the college, 12 outdoor courts, six indoor courts. Um, I still work on my stuff online. Um, I still travel a fair amount, obviously less during COVID, but mm-hmm. I would be a typical year prior to COVID. I was probably traveling on average once a month going to speak somewhere. Um, sure. And I've been lucky enough to present, you know, at all the big slams, you know, like the U S open and the, you know, all over the places. I had some really right. cool opportunities in Australia and, Wimbledon and stuff like that. So yeah, most, I think most coaches, other coaches view me as a, probably a coach developer or someone that helps them with the drills. Sure. Awesome. So um, let, let's take it back a little bit. Uh, how did, what's your story? how did you get started in tennis? How did you get to kind of where you yeah. are now? Well, it's a, it's a very interesting story. I'm, I'm Cuban. Uh, I was mm-hmm. born in Havana, Cuba in 1962 and that's right around when all the drama was happening in Cuba and lots of families were leaving. Mine was one of them. Um, so we were sponsored here. Every Cuban that left in 62 thought it was temporary that they'd be going back, but obviously that didn't happen. So we were placed by a, a church service and they placed us because everybody's in Miami and there's just way too many Cubans at that time for the jobs available. So they, they kind of, told us where we could go. And we ended up in Hudsonville, Michigan, which is really here, Western Michigan, a church sponsored us there. So that's how I landed in Michigan. And then I never, tennis wasn't on my radar until about my eighth grade. Uh, I made two friends, they moved into town. They both played tennis. They both played all the sports. Their dad was a tennis coach. Um, They were really best known for football. One of them played in the NFL for like 13 years, Ray Bentley. But Ray and Ron were twins, and they were my best buddies, and they got me going on tennis. So that my freshman year, uh, in the spring, when we played here tennis in Michigan, I ditched baseball, which I've always played, and I did tennis. And that's where I got to kind of have my first experience. And luckily, I I wasn't very pretty looking. I had all the wrong forms, very much (laughs) self-taught. But I could hustle, and I competed pretty well. So I made the varsity team as a freshman at the way bottom. And mm-hmm. um, I got the bug and I loved it. And I started just going from there. Okay. So then uh, 
that was freshman year of high school and then you transitioned. Um, at what point did you get into coaching? Yeah. So I, as an immigrant family, we, we didn't have money. Like uh, my dad didn't have money for me to take tennis lessons per se. It just wasn't on the radar, but I really wanted to play indoors. So I had this tennis coach, Don Dickinson, who literally changed the trajectory of my life. When I first went to inquire, you know, after my freshman year, like, Hey, can I play in this indoor tennis club called Ramblewood? He was telling me all the lesson programs and stuff. And in my mind, I'm like, Oof, there's no way. Um, but literally as I walked out the door, he called me back in, he asked a few more questions and I think he could see kind of like what the deal was that I, yeah. Uh, so he started saying, look, I'll, I'll give you for 20 bucks a month. You can do walk on, uh, it's literal walk on. You can't even call an hour ahead of time. You got to be at the club present. And if it's open, you can play on it. So I took that deal and I played another kid, probably the same kid, 15 sets, you know, a week, probably we yeah. would get there at three after school at four o'clock, the junior classes started and we just kind of did homework uh, at six o'clock. The quote unquote old people came in, you know, all the adults and the courts were pre-sold, but we'd wait around and see if everybody showed up and they would at seven o'clock. We'd go and check again and then maybe we'd get in the court. So we were total club rats. I lived at that club forever, yeah. uh, did my homework there and we played. And as that coach saw, you know, how much I was hanging around, he started giving me responsibilities like hey if you clean the courts in the morning maybe you can join one of the drill classes which was like perfect for me uh mm -hmm. and then i was sweeping clay courts and cleaning toilets and stringing rackets and probably by my senior year in high school he said hey you know you can maybe help me teach some of these little kids classes and that was really my first taste to teach anything when i was mm -hmm. in high school and i kind of liked that and it was for me a godsend because otherwise i couldn't afford it really any of the tennis training that I had. Got it. That's a, yeah, that's a really good story. So it sounds like um, just spending all that time around the club uh, just kind of led to a, a teaching position. And then you continued just coaching after that. Is that. Yeah. So that coach, um, he ended up being my college coach uh, at the time. Okay. Ramblewood tennis club in 1977. You know, we had all like a lot of clubs that we were the club to be at. If you were a junior player, all the good, not because of me, because the coach. So yeah. all the kids from different schools would go there. And um, by that time, I was number one at my school. But there were some real studs at that at that club in the junior program. And we all kind of knew each other. We didn't play in the same high school team, but we belonged to the same club. So we played tournaments together. And when we were seniors, uh, our coach, Don, came to us as a group. He got six of us together that were seniors. Um, and he said, listen, I've just been offered the job at Grand Valley State University, which is right by my house. Um, I'm just curious. I'm not inclined to do it. But how many of you six would like to go and keep the band together? Kind of, you know, I'll be the coach at Grand Valley. Y'all come." Oh, wow. And to us, it sounded great, you know, like, oh, so quite literally six out of six guys ended up there and we were instantly unbelievable overnight. The, the guy who played number one singles the year before. He came back when he was a senior when we were freshmen and he didn't even make the top six. Oh my so gosh. Six incomers. And we were on fire, ready to go. We won state. We went to nationals. I remember I won around at nationals. And then the very next year, the college cancels nine programs and tennis was one of them. And our oh. coach picked up and moved to Tucson. And I, I thought my life was over. Um, but I stayed at Grand Valley. 
because I could, it's five miles from my house. It was cheap, you know, and I could at least finish my degree there. So I didn't play college tennis for the last three years, but back then, mm-hmm. thankfully there were tons of adult tournaments, like little prize money tournaments for men's open, not a lot of money, but you know, there's a lot of options, not like today. So mm-hmm. I still played quite a bit. And when I was a senior in high school, I'm sorry, college, I was just assuming, you know, I had a marketing degree and I was assuming I was going to be a salesman of some sort. I had actually interviewed one time already to be a copy machine salesman, believe it or not. (laughs) And and right about that time, my friend from Ramblewood, my old club, called and said, look, he was the director of tennis, a good buddy of mine. He -hmm. just became the manager and needed to replace himself. So he said, would you like to be, you know, the director of tennis here at age 22 when I didn't have any, not that much teaching experience, but I took it thinking, well, I'll just do it for a couple of years. It'll be a fun start. And um, here I am 40 years later. still. (laughs) Yeah, that's how, that's how it goes. I know uh, several coaches who have a similar story where it's like, oh, I, I planned on it for a few years after college and then I just loved it and kept doing it. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I think, you know, I I was quite lucky. I got I developed some really good players early on. Mm-hmm. Um, three of them ended up winning gold balls. And if you know anything about if you're a tennis teaching mm-hmm. pro and you do that, then everybody tends to come to you and they think you're the hottest thing, which I yeah. really wasn't. I, I think I always say to people, I'm, I'm totally aware of how lucky I was because two of those national champions, they just, you know, they were very good. Um, I'm not sure I helped with that much, but I helped somewhat, I'm sure. But they live by the, the club. I mean, if they live somewhere else, I probably wouldn't have had those. And then I wouldn't have had this rush all my life of people coming to my club from far away. Um, so I I think, you know, I, I'm humble about it because I, I know very easily they could have lived an hour away sure. and I would have never had them on my radar. And I wouldn't have become known as the high performance coach in town back then. And my teaching career might have been different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, luck always plays a role, but you have to be able to take advantage of the the luck when it falls your way. So um, definitely credit to you. Um, so uh, I want to transition into some double strategy. Yeah. Uh, before each show, I always uh, email my guests and I say, hey, if there's anything you want to talk about, let me know and I'll make sure I bring it up. And you emailed me uh, two different things. One is 20 questions uh, for your doubles partner. Right. And the other one is the doubles partner mojo video. And before we get into each of those specifically, um, I read through them and then I watched the video, uh, the mojo video. And the thing that struck me was, you know, I, I asked you, I gave you an outline of Hey, we're going to talk about double strategy. We might touch on volley technique. And the two pieces of content you sent me were about chemistry with your partner. It had nothing to do with how to play doubles. It had nothing to do with how to hit a better volley or serve strategy, anything like that. It was all about getting to know your partner and communicating with your partner. Um, So talk a little bit about that. So obviously I've been teaching for 40 years and I've taught tons of travel or tons of USDA teams mm-hmm. uh, these are all three old to four or five for the most part mm-hmm. uh, just doubt probably thousands of doubles teams right and it didn't take me long to figure out that 
the teams that did the best, obviously you have to have some skills, you know, shot skills. You got to be able to put your serve a good location, you know, transition. The other thing I will, I'll say just as a side note, uh, my own coaching of tennis doubles has changed dramatically. I was raised by a coach that yeah. you served and volleyed and that was it. And if you didn't do it, you weren't going to play. This is back in the seventies, right? Sure. Um, and preferably you, you hit a return and came in as well. Well, for the first decade, I, I insisted on that all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the, an interesting side note that um, I coached this girl named Linda Tran. She ended up winning the girls 18s national indoor doubles championships. She got a gold ball out of it. And she volleyed with two hands, which I would have never thought I could handle. Um, <laughs> and she didn't always come to the net. She was, uh, Linda was a Vietnamese uh, immigrant family and she was five foot five, maybe uh, mm-hmm. not your physically what you'd think would be a great doubles, but she could return and she put her serve where she wanted. So I recognize now that doubles has changed a lot. So mm-hmm. my days of just insisting that every 3-0, whatever, I don't care what level you're going to the net, I don't do that anymore. Because even if you watch the mm-hmm. pros, they don't do that necessarily. The game's evolved. So I have to be mm-hmm. you know, aware of that. Um, a few years ago, I was at the U.S. Open and I counted 100 women's this is U.S. Open women's doubles, right? So it's not like yeah. low level. And I counted 100 points. I had a little chart on my thing, and I said, I'm just going to watch like 20 of these points. Move over here, watch 20 of that match. 20. And I counted out of 100 points how many times the they served and volleyed. And it was okay. one time. One yeah. time I had it was Mar- Martina Hengis did it. And she was playing with uh, Smyrny or Smart, her partner, that were number one in the world. So yeah. obviously, if I'm going to take the position that you got to serve volley, you know, I'm, that's way off. So, yeah. but without a doubt, uh, you have to have some skills. But the best teams are the ones that have this chemistry. They get along good. It's a good fit. Um, I love playing doubles. I was pretty successful as a doubles player. I had different partners. Um, but I it was real clear to me who I could play with and who I couldn't. So mm-hmm. that's why I kind of developed this 20-question thing. Because, you know, I've never coached a collegiate team per se. There was a couple of years where I was the varsity or the assistant college coach here at Hope College, and my daughter played on the team. And Adam Ford, one of my own students, he was the coach. So mm-hmm. that's about as, as close as I've, you know, been to coaching the collegiate team, high school or otherwise. But these twenty questions are universal. I, I, so basically, what I try to do if I'm coaching a, a USDA team, which I don't do that much anymore. If I was coaching any team. I would sit both partners down with me, probably, and they'd each have a piece of paper with all 20 questions. And we just sit there maybe a whole hour. Like I might even do a private lesson, say for today's private lesson, because yeah. I'm working with this double team, this is what we're doing. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. care if you're not going to hit a single ball. Um, and I'd love to go over some of those. I think you're going to post it so people can like get access to it in the show notes. But, um, yeah. you know, some of these are pretty obvious things you should be asking and stuff but i found that over 50 percent of the questions partners admit well no i never i never i don't even know thought about a partner i thought about it yeah so um i don't know if you want me to go through them or not but yeah i've got so i've highlighted uh probably 10 or so that i'd like to ask ask you about um sure and yeah, for anybody listening, we will include a link to this uh, in the show notes so they can go to the tennistribe.com slash podcast uh, and find the episode um, and we'll have it linked there. But uh, 
let's go ahead and start going through a couple of these. So the first one uh, is pretty basic. Do you like to play the ad or the do side? Um, how do you think about that? How do you recommend people kind of talk through that? Well, I, th- I think it's, to me, the, the big question is who's, who can best return a backhand from the do side, that inside out backhand mm. from all two handers. Um, right. A lot of times that's the, the main question I, as a coach, want to know. Like I personally did not do that very well. That skill, I had a one-hander. I had to hit it kind of late to get it to go inside out. And it wasn't my strength at all. Right. Sure. So I could chip and do the other things. Um, but for me, that's kind of the question. So I might, if I were coaching us, it was you and me, Will, playing as a double team. That's the number one question to help decide who plays the deuce or ad is I'm going to look at who's best at that inside out backhand return. Cause if you play at a higher level, they're going to probably be picking on that shot. And I know sure. for years when I played the deuce side, I, I stunk it up because I, I just wasn't very good at it. So that's kind of how I personally coach my players to think about it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've never heard it put like that before, but it does make sense. Like I've, um, I actually typically play the ad side, but when I play with players who have a one-hander, it seems like they tend to struggle with that on the deuce side. Yeah. Um, Some people they end up know, resorting to a lob or yeah. like a chip return or something. That was me, by the way. I, I sacrificed mm-hmm. a lot of partners <laughs> by hitting a <laughs> chip return lob that wasn't good enough and they're eating an overhead. But um, sure. yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people don't look at. They kind of, everybody has a preference, but if, that will be the number one helper to decide. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that um, I just want to mention, and I don't want to spend too much time on any one question, but uh, I've talked to last week, I talked to, or a few weeks ago, I talked to coach uh, Steve Smith and he talked about how on on the deuce side, that player is going to be hitting more balls. They're going to get more returns. Um, So the myth or the idea that the better player needs to play the ad court, um, that may not be true. That's kind of more of a myth. So people should keep that in right. mind as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Just statistically speaking, because there's always going to, you always start to do this. It's just the rule. And you may yeah. or may not finish on the ad. So at mm-hmm. the end of the day, and it might be an extra 20 shots, an extra 10 shots. Yeah, it definitely could. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, number two, what would you like me to say or do after you miss an easy shot? And then and number three, similar, what would you like me to say or do after you make a double fault? Yeah. So imagine again, the way I use this is, I, and I really would encourage people to print this off and sit, especially if you have a regular partner. So yeah. the reason I have those questions in particular is because everybody defaults to a certain way with when your partner makes a mistake. Okay. Most people, when your partner makes a mistake, um, your, your natural instinct is to, Oh, it's okay. Well, you know, no problem. No problem. Okay. Um, so that's me sending that information. Some Mm -hmm. people, when your partner makes a mistake, this is, I don't recommend this, but some people say, Oh, (laughs) I'm going to tell Will what he did wrong. Hey, Will, can yeah. you drop open? Which very few people like that on the receiving end. They don't really want to hear that. Right. Um, or the third thing is some people are kind of quiet. They don't say anything. And that can be misinterpreted as, oh, gosh, I just have a faulted. Will didn't even look at me. He just walked straight across the net. Yeah. He He's must be. Bad bad yeah. You know, and 
so I ask specifically, okay, if so let's pretend it's you and me. I say, Will, if you choke an easy overhead or if you miss a shot, what exactly do you want me to do? You want a high five? You want me to leave you alone? You want encouragement? Maybe you want instruction, doubtful, but, you know, let's have a talk about it and get on the same page because so many times without that question being answered, there's all sorts of doubles points being played across the whole universe where people are slightly agitated because the partner mm -hmm. is doing one thing and they never had a, a sit down to say, okay, here's kind of what I think I like, you know? So for me, I would answer that question. The best thing you can do for me is just give me a high five and tell me, shake it off. No problem. Here we go. Give me some encouragement. I definitely right. don't feel like getting a, a, a technical piece of advice. Yeah. I certainly don't want to feel like you're mad at me. So don't right. ignore me, but just give me, you got this. Here we go. Well, high five. Come on, get the next one. Simple as that. But you'd right. be shocked how many people don't really know what their partner wants and they just do what they default to. Yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine that's the most common response. Like, Hey, shake it off. Let's focus on the next point. That, right. That's what most people would want. Um, I do see, uh, and it's weird. I've talked about this on a previous episode, but I see sometimes in mixed matches, especially if the guy's better than the girl, if it's like a, a nine Oh match and there's a five Oh guy and a four Oh girl, the guy will start coaching the girl. And yeah. it's just, it's something that guys have in them where they just can't help themselves. And they're trying to coach technique in the middle of the match. And I've seen it happen at, against teams uh, with teams that I've played against. And I've literally won matches because the guy just puts so much pressure on his partner. Um, and it doesn't have to be mixed, but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely yeah. coaching technique. I definitely do not advise uh in the middle of the match. That's virtually no one wants that on the receiving end. If you ask a hundred tennis players, how many of you like it? If you miss your partner tells you what you did wrong technically and right. not a hand goes up usually. <laughs> no, not, not during a match. That's not the time to be working on that. Um, so yeah, so that's a really good one. Uh, people d definitely go back and talk with your partner about that. Cause there's, yeah, when I, I play these, I still play USTA leagues and tournaments, and I'll see so many players not on the same page as their partner. And it does, it seems like from the sidelines, um, I've even seen some like net players shake their head after their partner double faults, which is obviously the wrong response. But um, yeah, yeah, super, super important there. Uh, so next question, do you want to use signals or not? So yeah, let's talk about signaling. Yeah, so obviously... Some teams use it, some use it extensively, some mm -hmm. don't use it at all. But I've had partners that never talked about it. So one says, well, here's my signals. Here's what I'll do. And the, and the, internally, the other part is like, oh, sheesh, I don't, God, this is more of a hassle. This doesn't help me. This is going to, I'm trying to get my serve in now. I got to worry. You're telling me where to serve. I just want to serve with the box. So it's mm -hmm. very much worth a discussion of whether sure. the team in general wants to use signals. Um, I've had teams that say, you know, uh, when I'm serving, um, I like you to do signals. And the partner says, okay, when I'm serving, I'd rather not. And they have some hybrid thing. But most sure. most good teams are using some sort of signals and they can be really elaborate or really simple. You know, I've used everything. I've used, I've had partners that prefer not to do signals at all. I have partners that would give me three types of things like, some out meant poaching, some in not, and then they give me numbers for where to serve. And if the if their hand was flashing, then they meant kick serve. So mm -hmm. that's one extreme. And the other extreme is like 
screw it. I'm not going to do any of this stuff. Just let's just play straight up. And I don't want right. to have this extra burden of thinking about signals. So again, uh, it's worth asking. Um, and it's okay if it's different per player, but sure. what's not good. What I would warn you about, is just like assuming the other partner wants want signals or doesn't when they kind of secretly do. So again, it's just a talk, you know, mm-hmm. that's why sitting down and writing this stuff down uh, on this very sheet of paper is so epically helpful. Um, I mean, it's changed a lot of teams to have that's gone from struggling to just having tons more fun because mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is Perfect. even if they're not winning more, it's just more fun because we're on the same stinking page. Yeah. We're finally on the same page and we know what each other want. Um, so do you think signals depends a little bit on skill level too? I can yeah, imagine the, sure. the three O players aren't calling their serve locations versus four, yeah. five, five O. Yeah, I found that for sure. I think the higher the skill level, the more likely their signals and the more likely they're complicated. And then all mm-hmm. the way down to like, you know, if I have a 3.0 newish player, I, I'm not sure I even recommend signals for them other than maybe I'm going to fake or poach and right. just leave at that, but definitely not serve location or spin or any of that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but yeah, I do think it's a uh, skill dependent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, um, for people who haven't used signals in the past and you're, you're at that maybe four Oh to four five level, I would probably encourage you to start experimenting with it. Um, even if you're not comfortable with it, because once you do get to a certain skill level, um, and, and tell me if you disagree, Jorge, but I, I do think it helps. Um, if you're, oh, yeah. you know, if you're at a certain skill level, it's, it's better. you're better off at, at least talking. It doesn't even have to be signals. Um, Right. About where you're going to serve and what the net player is going to do. Yeah. Later on, when we talk about that partner module thing, we'll have an alternative to signals, which is basically verbal. You know, you replace it with just discussions and strategizing. Yeah. Um, doesn't help you between servers if you're going to change. But yeah, I, I would say that the higher you go in skill level, you know, if you go to the pros, I think it's my impression that almost all the pro level teams are doing some sort of signaling. Some mm-hmm. sort of communicating or talking, whether, yeah, uh, yeah, whether it's elaborate or simple, but yeah, I think, uh, and you think it, you know, I wouldn't do it just because you think it'll help, but I, I would say it this way I do think that the better teams do it, and I do think it's helpful, provided you have the skill to pull it off, you know, that right. That's why I don't insist on a three old team to do it because even though I know overall it helps, it may not help that level. If now yeah. they're worried about, oh, my partner's going to go. I got, I can't hit a puppy cake now. They're going to eat it. And I get all this garbage in their head. And then they're playing worse all of a sudden. Right. Yeah, it adds another layer of pressure. So uh, number five, who do you think should serve first when we play? So how, how should we think about that? So it's tricky because um, I think the mistake people make is, well, whoever has the better serve should serve first. Yeah. Um, and I think the better question is whoever holds serve more often should serve first. And people will go, well, isn't that the same thing? Almost, but not exactly, because I'm a good example. I never had a super powerful serve. Uh, I had a really good location. I had a nice little kick serve. So I was like the pitcher that didn't have a great fastball, but I could move it around and I could sabotage people. And I never let the opponent get something they liked. But power wasn't, I wasn't getting a lot of free points, put it that way. Um, I played for many years with Mike Woody, 
Uh, and Mike Woody is a doubles partner of mine, and um, it was, and he had a big booming serve. Okay, so on mm-hmm. paper, you would say, okay, Wood, Woody should serve. But the problem was, I was good at the net, but Woody was amazing at the net. Mm-hmm. So really the better question is not who has the better serve or the harder serve, but who holds serve more often, which is a, a encompasses a wider, you know, thing like, you know, who can place it better. A lot of it, if, if I'm stinky at the net, like I blow it all the time for my partner, maybe yeah. I should not be at the net first. I should serve first. Right. Uh, partner can do more damage because he was better at the net than me. So I think that's the big thing with question number five is a lot of people just don't, you know, they don't consider the net player. Yeah. They don't consider the better question, which is not who serves quote unquote better, but who holds serve more often, which is a different thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've played um, a number of mixed matches the last three, four five years where um, some of them are even eight Oh, and I'm playing with a, I'm a four five. I'm playing with a three five partner and I'll get broken twice during the match. My partner will never get broken because I'm so active at the net forcing so many missed returns. And if I, if I served right there next to my partner, I have a much better serve, but it doesn't matter. Um, We get broken so much more often. So, and if you, if your opponents have good strategy and let's say I'm, I'm a five Oh player playing with a four Oh player, they're mm-hmm. probably not going to return back to the five Oh player. They might lob the four Oh right. player a lot. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, that didn't work out how I thought because they're smart and they're kind of playing the weaker side. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of layers to that. So, um, so the next question that I highlighted, um, I'm going to skip six and seven and then move on to like eight through 10. So you've got, what should our plan A be when we play? And then nine is what should our plan B be when we play and then plan C. Um, So talk, talk about how to craft these kind of plan A, B and C. Yeah. So what I, the reason I have them separate um, is because I want people to be able to write down like question eight is what, what should be our plan A when you and I play together? Mm-hmm. So that might, what I'm trying to get at there is, are we going to stay back? Are we going to be attacking? Are we coming in on first serves? Are we attacking second serves? You know, wh- what is it we're going to do? Are we basically going to sit back and play a lot of defense and let them self-destruct? Or mm-hmm. maybe they don't self-destruct. They don't make a lot of errors. So maybe we got to go to the other side of the scale where I, we got to go in and we got to take it versus yeah. waiting for them to give it. So Whatever it should be, it should be identified. Hey, we should start playing this way for plan A. Uh, and then I say, let's assume now that, you know, let's say you and I, well, we're playing and we decide that, hey, we're going to serve volley and we're going to chip and come in because against this team, we think that's going to work. And then we're down one four and we're realizing, okay, that, that didn't work. Um, yeah. Missing my overheads. This guy's passing shots are amazing. There's no easy volleys. Everything's kind of down below that level. So then you would want to know already plan B. You don't want to be figuring it out at one four. You should already know and say, okay, let's, let's shift to plan B, which is now for this one, we're only going to come in um, on our first serve and we're only going to come in on their second serve. And we play that Mm -hmm. way for a while. Um, And, or, you know, you say, let's just play one up one back. And I think we can now ground stroke these guys because they're not great poachers. Sure. Um, then you go that for a while and then you assess it and let's say worst scenario that didn't work either then you're going to have a plan c so what's a plan c 
let's just both be back. Our college coach taught us this, this way of mm-hmm. playing, which he called it just like double back attack, which it was me and my partner would just drop, drop back. We spent a ton of time doing this weird drill where, you know how when you warm up, I feed you an overhead, you kind of stroke it at me and I pop it back up for you. We yeah. did that as a drill for like 20 minutes a day. So it was a weird skill, but our ability <laughs> to take overheads and, and lob them back was unbelievable. Everybody on my team wow. was that great. So, and I don't know if that was by design by him, but it ended up being that way. We do this quote unquote warm up drill for 25 minutes sometimes. And we're like, what the hell? I like, when can we play? But <laughs> at the end of the day, I won tons of matches by having, I took so many guys, quote unquote, put away overheads and could dig them out. And yeah. they had another one, I dig it out by the third one, they're choking. And now yeah. they lost the point and they're mad. Yeah. Um, so that could be another thing. But I think you have to have an A, B, and a C in your head, ready to go. Um, so, and I think what most people do this mistake, they either don't have any plan, let's just go and play. And so, Oh, so Will, you're starting violin today? You don't normally do that. So they're kind of winging it. Mm-hmm. Or, or they have just the A, and then when that don't work, they never discuss what B or C would be. Right. So to me, the three ways I would probably choose is either you're going to be kind of, let's say plan A is an attacking plan. Plan B might be one up, one back, and see if that works for you. And plan C is double back attack. Those would be yeah. three, three nice options. You should be able to... You might have a favorite, you know, sure. not only you might, you probably will have a favorite, um, but you should be able to deploy all three of those things so that you can yeah. win it's a wider um, variety of styles of doubles teams. Yeah. And it, it sounds like the important thing here is, is not even necessarily to, um, to have a particular plan, like this plan's better than that plan, but just to have a plan. Right. Um, so, yeah. so that once you get down, you know, four one or a set and a break or whatever it is, you don't just keep doing the same thing. Cause that's probably the most common thing or the most common mistake I see uh, at club level doubles is I'll see these teams that are down five, two in the first set and they change absolutely nothing. And they feel like it's just, Oh, my volleys are just off today. You know? And it's like, okay, well, if your volleys are off, you need a new plan because your volleys aren't working but they just hope their volleys are going to come back, you know, yeah, or whatever it might be. Thing. I think you're totally right there. Um, plan A, I think a lot of people think, well, the best way to play doubles is to attack. Sure. Um, and that's totally team dependent. Um, mm-hmm. th- that could be the worst play- way to play for some doubles teams. Yeah. Um, so whatever it is, I think everybody should like, for me, to be honest, probably my best doubles wins were not when I, and I consider myself an attacker. I came in, that was pretty good. That was our, my plan A for most of the time, but some mm-hmm. of the best wins are because of my plan C when I would able to go back and dig it. Like we play this, this, these two brothers, which are friends of ours, um, Fritz and bro Ballantyne. They were number one in the Midwest forever. I played mm-hmm. them a million times. It was always close. They always beat us, but the best results we had against them uh, wasn't serving a volume. Uh, it's when uh, we did the, some of that, but it's when we stayed back and, and dug out balls, that gave us our best chance against that particular team. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the important thing here, again, is is just really to be flexible and, and recognize on the court, okay, this isn't working. Let's move on to the next plan. Um, right. Yes. Yeah, super important there. Uh, 
before I move on to the next one, I have to ask about that drill. Do, do you still, do you still uh, teach that or have coaches yeah, do that so drill? I, I think well, I do it when I did privates. I haven't, um, that was a regular thing that I did during privates. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that it sneakily helps my players get yeah. consistent overhead. Um, th- those two words don't go together, consistent overhead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted all my players, you get an overhead, you make it, you know, this, you, yeah. can, it, you can crunch it, you can put, you know, not over all overheads are putaways, right? If you're hitting it from zone four way back near the baseline, I don't even know if it's the right plan to try to put that away in a double smash. You might just want to spin that back in and get in better position. But it's an unbelievable drill. It's almost people don't even think of it as a drill because, oh, you mean warm up. This is what I do during a warm up match. I'm going to yeah. lob to you. But if you do that, and by the way, you could play that straight ahead with a buddy and put a scoreboard on it. It's a heck of a game. It'd be one of the best games you could ever do. Will's at the net. I'm at the, I'm at the baseline. I lob you. Boom. We play it out. Um, yeah. And then next thing, I'm going to learn these things like you hit an overhead, I'll probably drive the next one. Then you close back in, I might lob again. So all these counter-punching skills and keeping it high, keeping it low, um, and just being able to make the net guy hit more than one shot is a super important skill that I think a lot of people just overlook. Yeah, and it sounds like uh, that would be particularly helpful for um, that kind of 3-5 USTA level because there's so many teams that lob uh so if you can really work on your overhead um it seems like it would help a lot so uh question 12 what can i do on the court to help your confidence stay high yeah so i usually when we you know again imagine me sitting with a double team or asking these questions of each other usually they go oh what do you mean by that and basically what I'm trying to do is build up my partner all the time. Right. So what most people, I kind of walk them through that question a little bit and almost always the answer is, well, just stay positive, give me positive energy, give me compliments, you know, keep me, keep me encouraged. The worst thing is silence. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to do a a little side note. I have it here on my notes of things I want to cover, but it's kind of timely. Um, If you're, if you coach tennis or play doubles for a long time, this happens all the time. Usually it's USTA league team, right? And they're competitive. They got teams and there'll always be a, a person, a player on the team, whether it's a male team or female team that no one wants to play doubles with so-and-so Joe. Yes, there is. Yeah. Everybody has a Joe Smith. No one wants to play with them. Uh, (laughs) Then you kind of dig into like, well, what what is it about Joe Smith that they do? And um, I'm going to tell you this story. It was so helpful. And I, I say it all the time. So I had this at my old club. This is probably 20 years ago. It was a person that no one wanted to play with. Mm-hmm. And when I asked, well, why don't you want to play with this person? Uh, they're mean. They, you know, she's always mad. You know, she makes me nervous. I, I, I don't play well with her. So I watched a few times. And what I noticed was happening was mm-hmm. this player that no one liked to play with. They were super quiet. They didn't give encouragement, nor did they give, you know, like, Negative feedback. They didn't roll their head and and like, you know, grab their shoulders when you double faulted. All they really did was remain quiet. And it dawned on me as a coach, you know what? When someone is quiet, 
people we're insecure for the most part. Yeah, right? we beat so ourselves up. I make a mistake, and Will's my partner, and he doesn't get mad, but he doesn't also encourage. He's just like nothing. He's just vanilla. It won't take long for the the person that made the error to start getting a little under. Oh my gosh, Will must be bad. That's just yeah. the way our weak, you know, we're weak people. We're and we're kind of inferior. We're nervous. So, and then I double fault, and you just walk across the net. And I'm like, so I talked to this lady. This well, I said it, it's a lady. I talked to them. I said, look, um, I I want to bring something up to you. I think when you do this and you don't acknowledge somebody or encourage somebody, mm-hmm. and 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 this lady who who was the one that no one wanted to play with, when I told her that, she was in shock. She goes, what? People, what? I never have ever said anything negative to anybody. I never do that, I promise you. And I go, right. that's the point. The fact that you never say anything, I'm not accusing you of saying negative things like you're, hey, why'd you miss that? Well, your serve sucks. You know, they're right. not, she wasn't that, but she needed to understand when you're quiet, the default position of many devil's people is, oh, my partner's mad, especially if you're quiet after they make easy mistakes. So she learned something like, oh, well, I never looked at it that way. I said, let's Mm -hmm. put it the other way. Let's imagine you were playing with me. I'm quite a bit better than you. You double fault. You know, what normally happens? Well, you would say, hey, here we go. Come on, give me a high five. Give me a ball. But what if I you double faulted three times in the game and I never even looked back at you? Yeah. What you think that you're probably, oh, he he must be mad. So that was kind of an eye opener for me. And I tell that story. Because sometimes people, uh, you do have the other extreme where some, the person just genuinely mean, you know, like, you know, no one wants to play with Sure, <laughs> Sam is like a jerk and he's arguing calls all the time. And every time you make a mistake, he rolls his eyes. Well, that's different. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that is a huge thing that I think, again, we're mm-hmm. talking chemistry and, and, you know, personality types and all this kind of stuff, but it's doubles and it's a two person game. And yeah. it really matters in singles, but it, it totally matters when there's more than one person. Yeah, that's a that's a really good story. Yeah, people um, should. Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's a really good takeaway of just like kind of how we immediately go to like a negative thought in our head. You know, yeah. um, if our partner is being silent, and and that in this case, that lady. Um, and by the way, that's trying to be mean at all. Yeah. She's just, she was shocked. She was like, yeah, never yeah, in yeah. life. And I said, I'm not accusing you of saying that good stuff, but that's why we go through this exercise. Right. Because one of the, some of the first few questions is like, what do you want me to say? What do you not want me to say? So, you know, I would say, mm-hmm. don't ignore me. You know, that's, yeah. that's going to make me feel anxious and maybe you're not mad, but I'm going to think you're mad because you're not making eye contact. And I just made two double faults. So uh, that all gets taken care of in this process. This is, you know, if you play with a regular doubles partner and you don't go through these 20 questions, you're missing out on a whole bunch of strategy and enjoyment for sure. Um, This is the best thing I do for our doubles teams in the history of like 40 years of coaching. Nothing's close. So let's go through one more question here. And honestly, I'm a little curious about why you worded it this way. Um, Number 18, should we always elect to receive when we win the toss? Yeah. Why didn't you put um, serve there? Yeah, because I wanted people to think outside the box. So, um, but basically, I know 
even statistically, you could probably prove this, that there's teams that I've coached that they win more games when they're receiving than they do when they're serving. Um, this is usually lower skill teams. It doesn't normally happen at a four five or five oh level because those serves are pretty developed there. But sometimes even a, even a three five team, which is a pretty good player, they do worse when they're serving than when they're receiving. Okay. Um, so I want them to consider and say, look, what are we going to do? Um, for us, I, I never received when I won the toss and the, when I was young. Okay. It was just nothing I would consider. I knew it was a possibility, but it's like, why wouldn't I serve? That's an advantage to be serving. It wasn't until later. And you see how much it happens at the pro level that people say, you know, I'm going to receive. And I'm like, what, but you know, why would they do that? Uh, and there's a whole, you know, you can debate all kinds of reasons, but, um, I've had put it this way. I've had three old teams, men and women that have gone for decades and always just served because they thought that's what they should do. And then when you do some mass charting, you say, well, you won 12 games. Eight of them was of those games where you were returning. Really? Yeah. You're, you didn't hold serve very often, but you're actually better. And so in that example, if that happens over and over, you should know, you should be aware of it. Um, And um, I just think the default thing for a lot of players, club players is like, well, I heard about that. I don't think that I should probably serve. Or you do have some people who their opinion of the serve is so bad. Like I have the worst serve ever. So I just always receive and Mm -hmm. shouldn't necessarily do that. Always, you know, either. Yeah. That's interesting. So I've, um, I've always told people to serve and honestly, I need to, um, I need to get some of the data on this because, uh, uh, I think Warren over at Tennis Analytics has it. Um, so I need to get it from him at the, for 3035 uh, and, and figure it out because I'd, I'd always felt like, you know, no matter the level, even if it's 55% of the time you're holding serve, I always just felt like you should always serve. Like even if one player has a worse serve, the other one's got to be decent. But yeah. um, it, it sounds like maybe that's not true. And I, I don't know. I guess p- people should really just chart it for themselves, like after each match, write down. Right. You know, how many the, times you the, want to eat? The first place I ever heard this was in Brad Gilbert's book, which yeah. is Winning Ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a couple versions out of that now. But I remember reading the first one. He said you should, he almost said, should always receive first. Should always like, receive, what? yes. But, and, you know, he has some reasons. That's when you're, you know, you're not quite warmed up physically. So you're not probably playing as good the first game as you are in the second game. Yeah. I had some good logic to it. Um, obviously if you're Isner and your serve is like ridiculous weapon, then you probably don't do that. Um, cause yeah. it's just better statistically, but it should be measurable. People should be able to, to know. I guarantee you, if you ask, you know, your average 3.0 to 4.0 club doubles player, you know, how often, what rate are you holding serve? 50%, 6%, 40%. They're, they're going to, it's going to be a total guess. Yeah. They're going to think it's higher than it really is probably. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have Warren on soon. So I'm going to get that data. Uh, and we're going to figure that out for any of the listeners. Um, keep an eye out for that episode. Um, awesome. So, uh, so again, we're going to link to the doubles questions. Uh, there's more than the ones we just talked about. We just went over probably six or seven of them, uh, but we're going to link to the 20 doubles questions so people can 
go over that with their partner. And then you also sent me the doubles partner mojo video. So let's talk about that here for a little bit. Yeah. So a long time ago, um, a famous sports psychologist, Dr. Jim Lair, I'm sure you're aware of him. He, um, he was the guru. He was the first guy that really did some research and helped people mentally. Uh, tennis sports psychologist, if you will. He's worked with all the greats, Sampras and all those guys back in the day. He's still around. I, I consider him a friend. He's a hero of mine, partly because I struggled so much with mental scuff. And when I first heard some of his data and some of his teachings, it helped me so much. And of course, now I teach it. So he came up with this thing called the 16-second cure. And what he realized is that to, to observe mental toughness during a match, it's really difficult to see mental toughness during the the point itself, like when the ball's going back and forth, you don't see it. But as soon as that point ends and before mm-hmm. the next one, so that between point time, that's when people show their body posture, they're, they're angry. You can tell real quickly. Sometimes you can be eight courts away and just by looking down there and not even hearing it, you can say, that guy's losing, that guy's winning. You know, you can just tell by their body posture. So mm-hmm. he didn't so much invent it as much as discovered it. He just watched matches and matches and finally just started paying attention just to the between point. So I hadn't seen anything about that for doubles. Um, so I thought, what, what's the what's the between point rituals for doubles? Um, sometimes I refer to it as traffic patterns because I tell my doubles teams, imagine you're playing doubles in a sandbox. So you're leaving footprints like on the beach. Mm-hmm. Where would that traffic look go? When you're doing it poorly, the server's going to be going back and forth on the baseline, and the net guy will be doing the same thing at the net. In other words, they're not coming together ever. So I started doing my own kind of research years ago, and I noticed, you know what? There's just like Jim Lair in the mental, uh, in the 60-second cure, there's four parts, positive physical response, relaxation, preparation, and rituals. That's what the best do between points. Here's what I discovered for the best doubles teams and think Brian brothers or any good doubles team. Uh, I, I still refer to it as four parts. So part one, uh, let's say you and I are playing well, uh, the points done great winner, screwy mistake. Doesn't matter. Part one is we make eye contact. We find each other on the court. All right. I yeah. see you. I, I don't turn away from you. I make eye contact and we look at each other. Part two is we come together. So let's say you're serving and you're in no man's land, and I was at the net, I'm going to come together. I'm going to come to you physically. I'm going to do some kind of physical touch, part two. So tapping your shoulder, knuckle bump, whatever. There's going to be some physical touch. Mm-hmm. And then part three, I call it the planning or the strategizing. Imagine, you know, like I walk you back to the service line or to the baseline because you're going to get ready to serve. I walk you back and we're whispering to each other. Hey, try to, I'm going to see a kick serve to his back in here. I'm going to push it. You know, that's where the, those are verbal signaling instead of actual signaling. Uh, and then part four is the reset. So I sprint, I leave you, I sprint back to my net position. I get ready and we repeat. Point goes out of play on the next one. We find each other. I come to you. I punch your shoulder, I walk you back, I release. And that, all you have to do is watch the Bryan brothers who who basically did this. I don't know if they were taught this, but anytime the team is doing well, they're playing well and they're having fun, they're doing this, okay? The exact opposite is those two ships in the night. The the net guy just walks to the other side and and the server walks to the other side. They're never coming together. The fun factor is down. And this is what's cool. You can actually practice this. This is 
you know, we play points and I say, we're going to play points and I'm going to, I'm going to film or I'm going to watch you do the, the four parts between points. We're literally practicing the between points performance. And I say performance because obviously during the point, there's a performance, but people think the time between the point is a rest period. It's just another performance. You're still performing, uh, doing these, you know, these rituals. And if you can do those four things, even if you don't win, you're going to have so much more fun and you're going to be so much more a pleasant partner for everybody. Yeah. Um, people just want to play with you. I, I'd like to say I invented it, but I kind of discovered it too. I, you know, by just watching the best doubles teams. Um, yeah. This has yeah, saved some people. This has saved some teams to know this and to actually practice it. Um, and sometimes yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll film it uh, just on my phone. And when it's mm-hmm. not going good and I can show it to people and the guy who's not doing it goes, oof. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. I can see where he might think I'm mad right there, you know. So it's really good coaching. Um, yeah. And it seems like in doubles, it's, I mean, it's got to be more important. Obviously, you can't be fist bumping and stuff in singles, but in doubles, your job's not only to play good yourself, but also to, um, you right. know, and this has to do with the questions, right? To help your partner play good and lift them up and lift their, you know, make them stay positive. So, um, all of this chemistry, uh, physical touch, talking to each other. Um, yeah. yeah, it makes and perfect think, sense that that's going to help. Um, I did make that video, so I think you're going to post that. But watch that yeah. video, guys, and just do a self-assessment of how good you are or are not at these between-point skills. This is a game changer. If you if you can get good at this, everybody will want to play with you. And yeah. it's always your play will be better. Yeah, that's a big thing. Everybody will want to play with you because you're going to be constantly encouraging your partner. Um, and I, I would say, you know, I, I feel like in practice matches, I definitely don't always do this because, you know, I might be tired or my knee's hurting and I don't want to walk back to the baseline. But um, if if people can really focus on this, you know, if you don't, if this is new to you, at least focus on it in the big matches or in the tiebreakers, things like that. Um, in a lot of matches, what I do myself is I'll, I'll signal uh, during most of the match, but if we get in a tight spot, need a big point, we're in a tiebreaker, um, I'm at the baseline and I'm talking every single point. So right. um, definitely uh, on a lot of the bigger points, um, th- this should be required, uh, if not all the time. That's right. So. So I'll link to that um, for everyone uh, in the show notes, um, as well as the 20 questions we talked about. Uh, And then I want to ask a few other questions on double strategy and then get into uh, some rapid fire questions here at the end. Um, So let's talk about lobbing. Uh, We talked a little bit about that drill you mentioned earlier, but at this 3040 level, one of the most common questions I get from uh, listeners of the show is, you know, I, I struggle against teams that lob. How should they think about that from a strategic standpoint? So I got two comments. The opening comment is just that so many people report that they hate playing against lobbers. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my pet peeve is when a person doesn't learn to lob. Like I want all my players to be above average with their lobbing skills because it's a good bang for your buck. Because here's what's involved. Most lobbing skills, I'm just blocking the ball. It's low risk. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. And in return, by the very definition of what I'm doing, I'm taking this little short stroke that I could probably master inside of a half hour if I got a good coach. And the other guy's timing and overhead, which is inherently dangerous. So anytime a lob, I think it's a high risk, low risk proposition. The guy who's lobbing has low risk. The guy who's hitting the overhead has higher risk. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a skill level, 4.5 or 5.0, that everybody's overheads are so well-developed that it's no longer a liability. But I'm mm -hmm. going to tell you that the most 3.5 players that I've coached, um, would, I would not classify them as having strong overheads. I'd say it's more of a liability than uh, strength. And half the four O's are the same boat. Yeah. You know, so that's a pretty freaking high level. And you lob them. I'm not talking like a sitter on top of the net they can pound down your throat. I'm talking put them on or behind the baseline, and it's not good for them. So that's the first thing. Uh, it's a pet peeve of mine that people, well, I don't lob. I, I you know, I'm not a lobber. I'm not a pusher. Um, but then the other probably now on the receiving end, right? So let's talk mm -hmm. about the complaint and it's legit. I've seen a lot of my teams yeah. lose to lobbers. Okay. Um, it could two, two major reasons people don't handle the lob very well. First mm -hmm. one is it's a technique, right? So they're not getting under it. They're kind of, they, they don't have, you know, that core, what I call quarterback footwork, where you take the snap, you start moving backwards, but your eyes are forward. You know, mm -hmm. so that trophy position, that's a skill that's not easy. And I think overheads are frankly under practice. You don't hit 200 overheads in a match. You might get five or 10 max. You might get mm -hmm. thousand ground strokes, right? So by nature, it's a shot that is under practice. Um, and then if you're scared of the net, you don't go. Now you might play a whole singles match without zero overheads. So that, you know, you're not getting touches on the ball to have that shot mature enough. The second thing is it's a timing issue. And I can't tell you about timing. You have to experience time. So whether it's a ball machine or me feeding it, you got to just time it, time it, time it. Your timing, if you can get your mind to be quiet and let your body just figure it out, um, usually it goes pretty good after 10 minutes or so. Most people, especially high schoolers, you feed them and they shank the first five. They're so, uh, their, their mind is just wailing on their body you suck you're the where are you the worst and, and they can't it's like someone with doing that from the sideline you couldn't deal with it right but they do it right. to so you just quiet the mind maybe you're mistiming them you're shanking a lot but you, your body will figure things out if you just let it and the mind doesn't like come in there and kind of cause havoc um right. and the third thing is a strategy strategy reason which is they're trying the wrong thing from where they are. So there's all types of overhead. So I like to divide the court up into zones, one through four. So zone mm -hmm. one is the near nearest the net. So imagine the service box cut in half from halfway up all the way to the net, that zone one. So okay. if my feet are in zone one and I hitting an overhead, I should be angling that off and I should be winning that. That you should you're green there. You're trying to finish it. Finish now let's go to zone two. So I'm a little further back. I'm still inside the service line. That's still a green overhead. You should still be able to hit that offensively. Maybe you hit a winner, maybe not. All right. Now let's go back to zone three, which is imagine no man's land cut in half. Now you're in that little nine foot behind the service line and, and halfway to no man's land. Now it's yellow. That is a total yellow overhead. I don't care how good you are unless you're a pro. Um, you should not be trying to green overhead there where you're trying to end it. Um, and if your feet are in zone four, 
you're in trouble, dude. This is not an easy shot just because it's lumped into the category overhead. So people don't break it down enough, in my opinion. They mm-hmm. they go well, overhead smash. It has the word smash right in the name. So no matter what, okay. I could be tripping in zone four or really easy. I'm just going to wail on it. I'm going to swing 10 out of 10 on my power scale. So if you don't make the right thing, um, you know, obviously the more skilled you get, you can do more offense from, you know, zone three and zone four back there. But so many errors that I see are people get lobbed into zone three and they didn't get under it or they did get under it and they just overplayed it. I mean, they tried to get 10 on the power. They should have hit a seven um, and their timing was off. So that's how I would coach it. I would make my player hit an overhead. And at the same time, right as they hit it, they yell out what zone their feet are in three, two. And initially I will almost say, all right, here's some ones. Will okay. I'm going to back you up. Here's some twos. Here's some threes. You feel the difference. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now you call it and I'll let you try it. So they start making decisions. Like what mm-hmm. you receive should determine what you send. And when it comes to overheads, too few people do that. They just go, I don't care what I receive. I'm sending back a bomb because I'm a good player. Damn it. And <laughs> yeah. I'm on the shot and, uh, and they get into trouble. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so for zone three, how should we, where should we be playing that ball? Obviously not a 10 on the power, maybe a, a six yeah. or seven. So um, directionally play, remember playing double. So I'm in zone three. You're probably seeing that I got it. You're going to be around the service line, maybe moving back into zone two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to hit it dependent on the, the opponent. So if one of the opponents is stupidly at the net, then I can maybe hit it towards him and he won't be able to react in time. If they're mm-hmm. both back, okay, if they're both back, I like to hit cross court because the assumption is you are going to be, you're going to beat cross court, right? So as soon as you see that I am in position to hit the overhead, you should start releasing and going back towards the net. You don't need to be back there cheering me on. Uh, mm-hmm. And if I hit a cross court, that means I've put the ball in front of you. It's going to mm-hmm. be coming. So let's say I'm in the deuce or the ad side and you're okay. on the deuce side. I get an overhead. I go back to zone three. I hit it cross court, which is to the ad side. Yeah, That's right in front of your deuce side. So right, I right. give you, the net guy who's in better position, a higher chance to get involved in the next shot. Mm-hmm. If I were to have taken that ball, you know, to the deuce side, mm-hmm. you're over there on the deuce side. You're cross court. The guy doesn't feel your presence. There's no pressure there. Right. Um, so, so it's a better way to set up your, your partner at the net. Yeah. And it's assuming I got some gas on the overhead. Not if I'm yeah. falling back and I hit a one mile an overhead that they're going to charge and kill. Not sure. so much. This is like a normal overhead where I got a little bit of power on it. That's directionally where I go. My partners, okay. I got real good. Like if my partner was hitting an overhead, as soon as I could tell he got it, it wasn't going to go over him. I would close so stinking hard. I'd be two inches from the net. And those guys really felt the pressure and I could, mm-hmm. I got so many easy volleys because we did that little, I call it the pinch. Uh, we pinched the team into that corner and, and put me right in their face. And there I was yeah. with severe angle potential. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and the going cross court, that ball is going to be going over the middle net strap. So the net's lower. Uh, yeah. and then you're going to have more court as well, right? Cross court, yeah. you're going to have more court to miss long. So, um, it just seems like a higher percentage play overall, regardless. Exactly. Um, Okay. Uh, so let's go through, I have a ton of questions and maybe we'll do a round two at some point. Um, but, uh, let's go through some drills and games for doubles. Uh, you've got, 
uh, your website, what is it? Tennisdrills.tv. Is that right? Yeah. So here's the best thing. Maybe you can post this. I actually have two websites. So people get confused. One's for players. One's more for coaches. Yeah. But we'll link to both of them. If, if you just go to capistanitennis.com mm-hmm. on that site, you'll see both. You can either go the, the one for coaches, the one for players. So that's just one. Okay. But um, I, I'm kind of considered the drill guy because this is what my website is. I got, you know, coaches from 65 different countries that subscribe to the drills website. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I also have courses. And one of the courses I have is pro practice secrets where I teach players, club players, how to practice with each other. I mean, I, I'm not saying don't practice with your pro. I'm a pro. I want people practicing with the pro, but the best sure. ones are doing more than that. Uh, right. So for doubles, here's a couple, and you can actually probably Google this Cuban Davis cup. It's a video I made. Okay, it's a yeah. drill. It's a drill that morphed into a tournament. It was so popular as a drill that it morphed into a, a tournament and it was a great tournament for us. So basically mm-hmm. you could do this with four people. Let's say Will and I are playing. Well, you're, you and I are one side and we're playing Roger and Federer on the other side or Fed and Rafa. All right. So it's a cross court game. So we don't serve. We don't t- bounce the ball and do normal serving. We just feed mm-hmm. it. So I'm at the baseline. I'm the deuce across the net for me and the other cross court side is Rafa. I feed it and I rush the net. Um, and Rafa rips the cross court and we play it out cross court only him staying back, me going up. If I win okay. our team, even though we play independently this whole time I'm playing Rafa, you're waiting to play fed in the ad court. So let's say mm-hmm. I win 15 love. Okay. That's our team score. We're up 15 love. As I back up, boom, you feed cross court, you play Federer cross court only. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you win. So now it's 30 love. And then I go, and then you go, and then I go, we play a whole game that way. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and the points yeah. are only cross court and we're playing yeah. one after the other, not at the same time. Right. Exactly. Okay. And I'll Got tell it. you the logic. Why? So after the first game, you and I uh, stay the same, but the returners um, actually you and I switch, but the returners don't. So, uh, you know, cause that's usually okay. returners don't switch. Anything. Sure. So now you play in the deuce. We, we would say we're up one on the set. You feed your Rafa, you go in. He passes you. I feed the Fed. I go in now in the ad court. So you play a whole thing like that. After every game, you and the feeders, you and I switch. So the thing is, if here's what's magical about that game. Um, because it's cross-court only, you're going to get touches on the ball. Too mm-hmm. many. The biggest problem people have with their net game and their transition game is that they don't hit enough shots. Um, yeah. So if I hit, you know, I, I did this research for a college team once. And it was eight-game pro sets, which is almost all colleges. Uh, we're at a D3 school. And these were good players, like 5-0 players. They're not necessarily scared of the net. And on average, I watched a ton of pro sets. On average, each player in one hour hit about 24 volleys. Mm-hmm. So for years, I would say this to people. If you want to get better at double or at your net, play more doubles. Okay? It's yeah, actually yeah. a misnomer. Now, for sure they hit more volleys in that hour than it would have if they played singles because singles, you could play an hour probably hit, you know, you five zero. <laughs> zero. So, but my point is my misnomer was, I think I was telling, giving homework, just play more doubles, play more doubles. And I realized, Holy crap. When I actually counted it, 24 volleys in an hour, that's less than one every two minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not enough to move. So we, the, that game was born. That drill was born out of, fixing the problem. And the problem was touches on the ball. So if you yeah. do that game, 
That's why we don't serve because serve slow things up. You and I could play a whole set. It might take freaking 15 minutes to play the whole set. Okay. Maybe 10. Uh, and you play, and then ask you, by the way, after the set, then you and I go to the other side and Rafa and Kai come in. Now they're the net rushers. You yeah. just play the game over and over and over. Super fun. Touch of uh, cross court. I tried it full court. Doesn't work. Cross court uh, is good for percentage tennis. Plus, mm-hmm. you're kind of you can't go around the guy so easily. So you're going to get a lot of touches on the ball. And if you do it long enough, you'll start to get smart. The passers start realizing, I don't want to hit hard here. I want to hit low. And the yeah. volleyers start realizing, why am I always volleying deep? Maybe I should get when I get inside zone two, I should hit a touch volley and get right off an the angle. baseline because mm-hmm. every time I hit it back to him, he does something genius. So yeah. unbelievably good drill, and that would be. If I only have one to recommend, that's it. Cuban Davis Cup. I think there's okay. a video on the internet about me describing it um, and okay. showing how it would work for. We did a tournament, and it was the funnest tournament ever because you yeah. and I would sign up, and instead of playing doubles, we played that. Yeah, and we split sets, which awesome we did. Then we played tiebreaker, and then if nice. we won, we go forward in the draw or we go in the back draw, and it was unbelievable. And it's almost like a training tournament. But yeah. here's the math. If you play that for one hour instead of 24 volleys, you hit over 200 volleys on average. Mm-hmm. So do the math. It's not going to take much uh, practice that way to move the dial. If you're a 24-hour volley an hour guy yeah. or gal, good luck. You're going like you know, 10x. might take you you know, five years to actually get to 5,000 volleys and, and be any good at it. Awesome. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. And we'll we'll link to the video in the show notes. And I, I think the thing, like one of the takeaways for me for, from you describing that drill is just winning that cross-court point in doubles and, and how important that is. Uh, I've mentioned this some on previous episodes and some guests have talked about it, but if you can win that cross-court rally most of the time, you're automatically going to be in a better position. You're going to have to, uh, you're not going to have to take as many risks and the other team's going to be the team that has to, um, to kind of take on more risk and to go for that down the line shot. That's so low percentage and things like that. So finding drills to practice winning that cross-court rally is, is super, super important. Yeah. That's a great drill. That's helped tons of my own players for sure. Um, so a couple more questions here. Uh, what are some common mistakes you see on, on volley or half volley technique? I think on volley technique, it's it's how you accept the ball. So I have this video where I describe so many people that I've coached that say, oh, I, I don't volley well. You know, mm-hmm. there, it could be two things. It could be technical, right? They're swinging too much or whatever. So I like to take a a can of tennis ball, like literally a can, Mm -hmm. uh, and hold it so in my hand, like I would a volley, so that the circle, the opening is facing you. And then you toss me balls, and I try to catch it in the can. Because Mm -hmm. I can't take a racket back. No one would do that. Kind of get the hole facing you, and I do this little motion. So it's a really clever little drill to help with technique, particularly for people that swing too big. The reason people swing too big is because you and I are more experienced. So I might take a volley coming in and just with about one foot of racket head motion, I can knock off a pretty hard volley. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're a 3-0, you do one foot, it doesn't go anywhere. So you feel like, oh, I want to hit it hard. So when I swing four feet, 
oh, I, you know, it's more likely your racket is moving at the right time. But now you mm. you sacrifice them. You sacrifice timing and, you know, fastballs are a nightmare and stuff like that. So that's the technical side. But the strategy side, I think, is, is how you take it. So, so many people, I, I have this video. I have a ball machine shooting and it goes and lands right in the middle of no man's land. Okay. Mm -hmm. Same ball all the time. And I, I kind of talk about the ball. I go, this would be a typical ball coming your way. And then I stand right in zone four. So this ball is bouncing at my feet, right? Okay. So this volley, this half volley, I guess, is a nightmare because it's at my feet. But then mm -hmm. I move four, five steps up. And now that same exact ball, I haven't touched the ball machine, is now volleyed by my thigh. And it's uh, immensely easier. Yeah. Then I go a couple more steps up, and now it's a volley by my chest. And yeah. I go, so it's the same ball. It's the ball mm -hmm. machine is coming. It's how I accept it. So there's this weird thing where people, uh, I'm not good at the net. Uh, and so they're tentative. So they go in a little bit, just enough to give themselves a worse possible shot. Yeah. And then they talk to themselves, oh, see, I suck. You know, uh, another yeah. one at my foot. Well, if you were positionally better. So that's, if I can show that to someone and get them to kind of realize, oh, yeah, I'm only right. doing this volley, which is the hardest version. If I actually was a little braver and got into the service line, that same volley is right by my my belly button, and it's it's a lot easier. Same as that yeah. ball. So the yeah, ball it's machine, just a position thing. Yeah, yeah. The ball machine is helpful because they know I'm not messing with it. If, if I feed it, they think I'm just feeding it easier. So I just okay. put the ball machine. And I say, let's take a field trip. You and I are up here. Oh, these are tough. Let's take. Let's go three feet up. Well, a little easier. Let's go four feet up. Oh my god, five feet up. This is the easy. I could put this away all day long. So it's really that's kind of how I like to teach the volley. Make mm -hmm. sure the technique is good. Um, but then I guess the last thing I would say about volleys that I think is a high mistake ratio is always volleying deep. Mm -hmm. That's what we're told. Oh, look at how good that volley was. I, he stuck that volley. But yeah. if, if I'm playing Will and what you want, if, if I'm at the net, you want me to volley deep because that's where you are. Not very many people at the baseline saying, Oh, Jorge's at the net. I hope he hits a drop volley and brings me in because I want. They're not saying that. They love the fact that you're there, and and they want to be right where they're comfortable to begin with. I'm mm -hmm. at the baseline, so yeah, you do have to volley deep. But I believe that once you get inside the service line, you should be looking to volley short mm. and stop volleying back to where they are. Um, yeah, I have people who play pretty high level tennis, and that I swear in their whole life it never occurred to them to purposely volley short they might do it yeah. by accident maybe they shank one and it ends up being a clean winner and they still don't put two and two together oh it was a horrible volley you saw the guy didn't even get it right yeah but uh, i go what if you could do that on purpose and then <laughs> I, I have a pretty good drop volley so i can do it just uh, i go watch go back i'm gonna deep 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 and then i'll hit a drop volley they won't even come close to getting it and i'll do right. that five times and i go so what do you think is this what if you had this? Is this a good idea? I can yeah. just sprinkle this dust and you have the shot now. You're going to ruin a whole bunch of people that you're unnecessarily losing to right now because you never developed that. It didn't occur to you. So that that would that's a big one for me. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. The um, A few things that, that kind of came to my mind there. So one is is the positioning. So I see, I see so many players, uh, they'll miss a volley down by their ankles and they'll be standing maybe at the service line 
And it was a ball that was like floating real slow over the net. And then they miss it down by their ankles. And then they practice their technique in between the point. Yeah. And I'm sitting there on the sidelines watching going crazy. Like the problem, the reason you missed that is not because of your technique. It's because you didn't move forward. That was an easy high forehand volley for you to put away and you just let it come to you and it dropped all the way to your feet. So that's one thing I want people to remember. Uh, Another thing. um, Yeah. Is that angle and not hitting it back to the opponent. This is something that I myself need to work on. Um, But yeah, volleys forward inside the service line, especially if they're above the net working on uh, the shorter angle volleys or the drop volleys. Like you said, I, I do feel like when it's maybe a little bit below the net, or if they're able to kind of dip it low at your feet, um, a lot of people may not have that drop volley in that case, but um, right. something to work on for sure. Um, and getting that in combination with, you know, depth when you need it uh, exactly. to use that variety. Um, so two more questions and then let's get into some rapid fire. Uh, if there's one thing you could change about tennis coaching, what would it be? I think um, I I've been a coach developer for a while now and I do have a lot of content. Most of my content is actually for coaches. I think mm-hmm. that probably the number one pain point that I see coaches have is that when they run group lessons, two, mm-hmm. I'll talk about groups and the two types of lessons a coach would give is a group lesson or a private lesson. So when it comes to group lessons, too many drills that are being used are just boring. They're not purposeful and they're not mm-hmm. energetic and it doesn't really it's just kind of a, a poor drill. Uh, when I started my drills website and I started speaking about that, you know, if you go to any tennis coaches conference and there's a title of a presentation that says drills, I mean, it's the most attended thing. This is what we do for a living. 40 hours a week, 30 hours a week, you're running drills for people, group lessons, clinics, drills, whatever word you want to use. It's group yeah. drilling. Okay. So that <clears throat> that is the problem. Um, and then when it comes to private lessons, I think the biggest thing that we struggle with as a country is private lessons uh, tend to be Band-Aid lessons. So let's say I got Will. He's a 12-year-old. If you were my 12-year-old, we wouldn't be doing Band-Aids. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have a sheet that I call the vision sheet. Even though you're 12, I'm going to try to figure out how you should play when you're 18. And maybe I look at your size and your temperament. You know, I I met Luke Jensen when he was uh, 14 years old. He had a size 14 foot. Okay, well, mm-hmm. it wasn't too hard to figure out he was going to be a big dude <laughs> and he yeah. could serve lefty, you know, 100 miles an hour both ways when he was a little kid. So no one thought, well, he's going to be a steady baseliner. You, yeah. so you can predict this with a little But then once I have that, that informs everything I do. And hey, when you're 15, maybe we have to change it because we do. But at least yeah. the roadmap, I have my 12 year old Will. We're headed towards 18 years old, and and we know what we're doing. And then more micro-wise, every semester that I work with you, we should have projects. So Mm -hmm. projects are things you want to accomplish. I want to add a second serve. I want to learn Mm -hmm. a drop shot, and I want to improve my consistency. No more than three. So that every private I have, let's say we're having this right now in Michigan. It's September. Kids are starting up with their pros. They're going to be with that pro every Tuesday at six for the whole indoor season or whatever the times are. Um, All our pros have vision sheets that they can show the parents. So they know I'm not just fixing it too many of our lessons. The kid comes, Hey, what do you want to work on? I don't know. 
Well, didn't you play a tournament last week? Yeah, my server's stuck. Okay, let's do a server lesson right now. And maybe that lesson is good, but it's not connected. It's just dabbling, yeah. dabbling, dabbling. So I could go a whole school year, give 40 lessons. And if that parent asked me in May, okay, what did you do with my Jimmy? You know, they had him 40 private lessons. I paid a lot of money. A yeah, lot yeah. of pros would be like, well, well, we did everything. You know, I want yeah, to, you know, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you exactly what we did. We figured out in September, he's going to be in all quarter. And in the fall, we did these three things. This one's done because they already fixed the second serve. Now we just recently added, you know, a slicer in the backhand because he doesn't have, you know, and that, that's a lesson. I mean, that's a pro mm-hmm. that's developing a player as opposed to just taking their money and, and doing band-aids all over. So that mm-hmm. was, if I could change and had some magic powder to do it, that's what I would do. Better drills because that's still the number one thing that engages people and how they experience their time with a pro. And then better purposeful, you know, roadmap for private lessons. Yeah, that's, that's makes sense. It's a really good answer. Um, yeah. It seems like almost, uh, especially for the private lessons, there's just, as a coach, you need to be thinking about what, what tools do we need to add to this player's toolkit, you know, um, in alignment with that vision. Uh, so what, um, I don't know if you'll have an answer for this, but I wanted to ask, because uh, I usually ask all, all the guests, um, what do you feel like needs to be done to make pro doubles more popular? Well, I think it's popular. Um, you know, the problem is it doesn't get airtime nearly as much, right? And we mm-hmm. know the, the stats. We know that, you know, people don't tune into that as much as they tune into singles. But we also know that the vast majority of people watch and play doubles more more doubles players uh, yeah. at my club for sure. And in most clubs. So I think back in the day when they were about to kill it and the Bryan brothers kind of revived it and they went to, you know, they changed a bunch of the rules, like, Hey, it's not going to be three sets. We're going to play a tiebreaker. Um, I, I honestly think that whenever doubles is on TV, I, I enjoy watching it. And I think mm-hmm. I like watching now if I had to pick a doubles match, or Rafa's playing on grandstand, I'm probably going to go watch Rafa because it's, it's Rafa. But I think step one would be to give it more airtime. Um, mm-hmm. It's some of the best points. I mean, there's more. Yeah, it is. Nas during doubles points than there are during singles. Although the current U.S. Open is doing pretty darn good. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, they are. Some amazing tennis there. But I think that's the number one issue. Um, you know, some of the singles players, I don't think you're ever going to get all the top singles players playing doubles, which would help. You know, if you yeah, start Rafa and Federer and Zarev and T and everybody's playing doubles, well, they, they're an attraction. But they get so much more money for singles that it's not economically smart for them to spend more time in the court. I'm going to do my yeah. five better here at the Open. I got to get recovering. I can't be playing doubles, you know. So I think mm-hmm. that's a problem. I don't think that problem's going to be fixed. So you're left with, you know, the, the best, most famous players not playing doubles for the most part at most tournaments, especially this mm-hmm. land. Um, so I think the TV time, I don't think any more rule changes are necessary. I don't, you know, I think I didn't love it when they went to a tiebreaker for the third, but I get yeah. it. Um, I think, you know, it's probably just as important. Um, I wouldn't change mm-hmm. that fact necessarily. I think it did help. Um, and I do think that there was a dominant team like the Bryan brothers. It was a little more helpful. Now it's not quite so dominant, <clears throat> you know, so it's a yeah. little different. Um, there's not a quote unquote famous double. I mean, Bryan brothers were 
almost a household name. Right. Um, I'm not sure I could tell you who the number one seed is right now at the men's doubles or the women's doubles at the Open. Yeah. But I knew the Bryan brothers. So I think, you know, maybe if there was another dominant um, team. That- yeah, they changed partners <clears throat> a lot. So it's, it's tough to yeah. get kind of a storyline or a kind of a fan base like the Bryan brothers had. Um, yeah, no, those are all good answers. And it, I had uh, Rajiv Ram on earlier this year and he said, um, he said he actually liked the 10 point tiebreaker, but he wanted to get rid of the no ad, which nice. is, it's not a thing at the U S open. Um, and at the U S open, they play a full third anyways at the majors, but, um, yeah. in a lot of the smaller tournaments, and I think even some of the masters 1000s, they're playing no ad. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a that's huge, a, uh, it feels like a lot of, more luck involved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously. You know, the other thing that I think would be cool and it might get the top players to play if there was an occasional, even if it's once or twice a year, just doubles only tournament, like a doubles, yeah. band, you know, like fed and Rafa and Novak, they're not, if they're trying to win a, a slam, that's the only thing they care about. Um, and they got to play five sets. They're not going to take an extra ounce of energy to play doubles. But yeah. if they even have to play singles, if it was just doubles um, and there was nothing but doubles, and then maybe they would play, uh, that would be kind of cool. Uh, and yeah. give it like some kind of grand slam or big time prize money so that those top guys play. And I mm-hmm. think it would be cool. I mean, Labor Cup's kind of like that. You know, mm-hmm. you said, you said, that's the first and only time you get to see all those top guys playing doubles for the most uh, part. Yeah. But, yeah, that would be awesome. If they could promote it the right way, I think that would do really well. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's do a few rapid fire questions and then I'll let you go. Um, let's start with uh, what's your favorite tennis book? Uh, the Inner Game of Tennis. Um, read a long time ago. It's from Dr. Gow. If you play tennis and even if you're medium to not great with your mental skills, that's the book. I think every pro player has read it. It's a little old now, but it's timeless. And uh, yeah. Inner Game of Tennis, Timothy Galway, I think. Yeah. Highly recommend. Uh, what's your favorite non-tennis book? Non-tennis book? Well, I it's a little bit of a tennis book, but the one by Dr. Jim Lair. Um, it's, okay. uh, I wish I knew the name of it now because I, I have it's right over there. I think it talks it's about okay. winning. I'll look it up. <clears throat> yeah, um, it's all about winning with character. Um, mm-hmm. That was that's a really good one because it's not super tennis specific. It's more like sports specific. Um, and it talks about like character being super important for all development of things. It's really helps people kind of get their purpose. Right. Awesome. What's your favorite, uh, tournament? Well, um, I visited, um, Australian open it was amazing. I mm-hmm. spoke there once I visited Wimbledon. Uh, that was amazing. I visited the uh, US open, never been to the French, probably, mm-hmm. They're all so cool, but Wimbledon being Wimbledon, it was like so unexpected. I mean, everything was, it's like a, a botanical garden in that place. It's just crazy yeah. in the grass. So I think that was probably my favorite, but um, visit. But my, I, I have to say the U.S. Open is really almost tied because I, I generally work at the U.S. Open. I have a couple gigs that I do there. I haven't done it for a couple of years because of COVID, but um, mm. I love going to the city and being a part of it and, you know, helping out in the fan experience court but um yeah probably wimbledon or the u.s open i've only been to wimbledon once i go all the time for the u.s open 
Okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. US Open's a great event. Um, what is, do you still play tennis a lot? Uh, unfortunately, I don't. I have two really bad yeah. knees that aren't doing so hot. I got to get some uh. operations here soon. Um, I can walk pain free and, you know, but I don't play. Yeah. So when you did play, what was your favorite position on the court? Well, I was a net rusher in singles, so that's probably why I played better doubles than I did singles. But mm-hmm. um, I liked the net. I was fast twitch. I had really good hands. I could get back pretty good for an overhead. But the other reason I liked coming in so much is because I wasn't that good. I had a decent forehand, but my backhand, I went from a two-hander to a one-hander. My backhand side has always been semi-liability. So mm-hmm. it was never a good strategy for me to grind from the baseline. Uh, plus, my temperament is such that I'm, I don't, I'm not... You know, if I hit five, even if I'm hitting well and I hit 15 balls from the baseline, I'm, I'm like, that's not fun to me. I want to get sure. in and finish it quicker. So, yeah, I, I was a front guy, attacker guy. Okay. So maybe like server's partner? Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, server and server's partner. Okay. Yeah, I, I should have phrased the question a little differently. Gotcha. Um, Okay. And then what, uh, what's your favorite play in doubles? So, so for example, for me, um, my favorite play in doubles is to poach off the return. Yeah. I think, well, so let's, when I'm at the net, okay. My yeah. part serving, I'm at the net, um, somewhat related. I always try to start in zone two. So I'm in the back half of no man's mm-hmm. I'm inside the service line. But the key to me, I don't even know if it's a play, but it's a technique, is as my partner serves, I migrate from zone two into zone one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you should stand in the middle and get ready because if you're upper body ready, it doesn't mean you're lower body ready. So mm-hmm. all the best teams, you know, I call it pre-movement. They're, they're not just waiting for the ball to be struck and then trying to, to move. They're creeping. Think of a returner. They're yeah. creeping, and when the ball is hit, they're already moving, so they got to quick. They're quick out of the block. So I, I do that mm-hmm. when I'm at the net guy. And by the way, it's a great teaching technique. I have a lot of people who don't poach well, and it's because they they're only ready. I mean, they think they're ready. They're up here, and they're you know they're super. Their racket's ready, and they're but if you look down below, they're completely flat footed. So the ball gets hit. They first got to get up, and then they got to go, and they oh they're slow all of a sudden. Yeah. So I think that that move where I'm kind of pre moving. Uh, before the return is struck is my favorite tactic to use. Got it. All right. Uh, last question. Um, so what is a, a tennis story uh, that you've never told anyone, or it can just be your favorite story. Some people don't, don't have one that they've never told anyone. There is a story I, I tell, I don't tell it too much. It, uh, when I was in college, I played in this big tournament at, at my rival club in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I was pretty good at that time. I was probably 5.5 level. I was probably 23 years old, 22. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a kid that grew up in town. Um, I won't say his name. I always was able to beat him. Okay. Um, it, I'd beat him three and three on a, on a typical day. Well, it had been a couple of years since I saw him. He went to college. I went to college. And now we're playing in this tournament and, it was kind of like a fundraiser tournament and it wasn't at my club. It was at the other club, which was our rival where he happened to be a summer teaching pro. Okay. So I go to this tournament and I'm in the finals of the men's and against him. And, um, 
I show up for the finals and I'm shocked at how many people are there. There's like, they set up all these chairs. I mean, there's like maybe a couple hundred people watching this non-sanctioned match. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, holy crap, this is like, this will be fun, you know, but I haven't seen them. And then my brain, I'm thinking I'm going to win three and three because I always beat this guy. Yeah. Uh, well, I start out and two things happen. Uh, the guy started, I played normal and he was out playing me. I was down one four. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, could could this guy have actually passed me? Or yeah. there was a piece of me that thought maybe he's training at the moment. He's not going to be able to keep it up. But yeah. I wasn't sure. I was kind of. And at the same time, the crowd was unusually hostile. They were like, every time he had a winner, they were screaming. And, and they were like half booing me. So I was like, man, this is kind of intense for this like non-meaningful match. So <clears throat> I, I go on. I lose the first set like 6-2. And I'm thinking, okay, reset. I'm I'm hoping that he lowers his level. And I, you know, I kind of say to myself, let's just play some long points and and not get out of here yeah. too quickly. Um, and I'm down, I'm down two, three, I'm down two, four. And at about two, four or three, four, he came to the net and I I hit a lob and he got he smashed it. I dug it out. I ended up lobbing like four of his overheads back, and on the fourth one, he nets it. Mm-hmm. And then he yells out loud enough for everybody here. Damn it! I knew you couldn't keep this up. He said that oh. out loud. Oh my gosh! And guess what I thought? I go at that point. I had kind of mentally decided, yeah, this guy is is actually better than me now. So yeah. bummer. But when he said so that, you, so now was, you know. I was like, I knew it. He is yeah. true. And that made me buckle down. And I just, for the next couple of games, I just said, I'm not going to miss. I'm going to play long points because I think he's going to be more nervous. He's already agitated. And slowly but surely, you know, I got back in that set. I won that set like 7-5. He was super pissed. I won the third set like Um, (laughs) 6-2. Such a weird story because I was bumping back and forth about I really didn't know. I go, the people have passed me before that I used to be able to. Mm-hmm. I go, this might be one of those cases, bummer. But when he said that, it totally gave me life. Like I knew it. He is treeing. He won't be able to keep this up. I'm still better than him. And I try a little, it gave me encouragement. And yeah. the I, I literally think I probably would have lost that match had he not uttered those those words in frustration. He's not said that. Wow. That's a <laughs> right? good story. Um Awesome. So Jorge, uh, we'll close it out here. Any final requests, uh, for the audience? No, I appreciate you guys listening and uh, get after some of that content in the show notes. If you could just put yeah, com, they can go to either site that they want. A lot of the, the, Perfect. Uh, the, the player sites full of free stuff. So there's all kinds of, you know, free tennis lessons there. You can even get a free mental toughness course. Uh, and if you're a coach, awesome. you can check out the other one. So awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Jorge. Thanks, everyone. All right, for buddy. Thank you for having me on. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you're a doubles player, you'll love our weekly doubles newsletter. Every Thursday, we send you doubles tips and strategies to help you improve your game and become a smarter player. When you sign up, you'll get a free 10 page guide on how to play with more confidence and dominate at the net in doubles. You can go to thetennistribe.com to sign up now.